first, it could be Boston. And I said that um, as we were praying before the services this morning, and uh, Brian Hogan said to me, yeah, and he said, yeah, but it sure isn't the Bahamas. <laughs> so, you know, we're sort of in the middle someplace, right? Um, we have the privilege of looking into God's Word this morning, and this is actually the second of a kind of a two-part series in the larger series on the life of David, because we're looking at this amazing, fascinating, famous story of David and Bathsheba. Um, one of the best-known tragedies in all of the world. I mean, David, after all, was one of the greatest men that ever lived, one of the godliest men that ever lived. He was uh, uh, ultra-competent as a soldier warrior, as a leader, one of the greatest kings ever. He was a creative, artistic genius, a, a, a musician, author of many, many of the most famous psalms in, in all of the Bible, poetry in all of literature. Uh, I like to think of David as the, kind of the original Renaissance man 2,500 years before the Renaissance ever began. And yet at the height of David's career, I, I, I mean the zenith, the apex, the Mount Everest of, of his career, when David had unrivaled power and authority, he abused that power. Committed adultery, murder, and, and actually the, the murder of a number of his most loyal, some of his uh, most faithful soldiers. Now the Bible is a spiritual book. The Bible is about how uh, uh, much God loves us and how to live for God. So when we come to a tragedy like this, kind of a dark story, we ask ourselves a question, why in the world is this in the Bible? What, what is God doing? Why has God uh, placed this here? And I think there are two answers, uh, two reasons uh, uh, that God has given us this uh, David and Bathsheba story. And the first is to show us uh, the huge potential for evil that exists in the human heart, your heart, my heart. I mean, if David, this godly man, can do this, each and every one of us can do horrific evil. And that's what we looked at last week when we looked at 2 Samuel chapter 11 and the beginning of this story, and it bled into chapter 12. But there's a second reason. I believe this is in God's word, a, a second point here. And that is to show us the even greater restoration that God offers us in divine forgiveness. So if David can be forgiven, anyone can be forgiven. And that's our focus today. As we go through a, a portion of 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now before we get there, I want you to understand there's two parts to what we're doing today. Uh, we're going to look at uh, what David did and we're going to look at what God did. We're going to look at a human side and a divine side. David's repentance and God's grace, his forgiveness. And here's why this message today, right now, matters so much. There's not a single one of you in this room that doesn't live with regrets. There isn't a single one of us that doesn't have regrets. Things we've done, things we've said, things we've thought, uh, secrets 
Now, Chicago is a big city. There's a lot going on. There's lots of opportunities for good. Conversely, there's lots of opportunities uh, for evil. And some of us living in this big city are living with big regrets. Some of you feel like you can never be forgiven. You feel like your, your, your past is too dark, uh, too seamy, too awful. And I want to say to you this morning, based on the authority of God's word, that just is not true. If David, who slept with another man's wife, murdered the husband, then murdered other innocent, loyal soldiers, all while he was king, which makes him doubly guilty, if David can be forgiven, if David can be restored, restored any one of us can be, regardless of what we've done. You see, according to the Bible, hope, restoration, uh, forgiveness is not a function of how good we are. It's a function of how deep God's grace is. And my task today is to show you that in the story in God's word. So we're going to begin with what David did. We're going to look at the human side. We're going to look at David's repentance, critical, critical issue. So if you haven't already, turn in your Bible, turn on your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Grab a Bible in front of you. It's around page 300 or so. And we're going to pick it up in verse 7. Then Nathan, now Nathan was a prophet of God. He was a counselor to David. He was a friend a loyal supporter of David. Then Nathan the prophet said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite, one of, his mighty, one of David's mighty men, with the sword. You took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised, and took the wife, despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Kind of grim. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you, reference to his son Absalom, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did in secret what I will do this, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Now, in these last two verses, verses 11 and 12 that I just read, we have a, a reference specifically to David's son Absalom. A couple references, actually. Um, the calamity, God uses the word through Nathan, the word calamity. The calamity refers to Absalom, David's son, who will betray David the father, attempt to uh, throw David out, take over the kingdom, and, and works to have David murdered. And God says calamity is coming because of your sin. Now I want to say something before we get into this issue of repentance about consequences. 
because we get, we're kind of sloppy in our thinking about consequences. Divine forgiveness does not mean God removes consequences. What it means is God removes guilt. It means God gives you the grace to get through the consequences. We tend to want to believe uh, that um, uh, change in consequences ought to parallel uh, a forgiveness, but it doesn't work that way. It didn't work that way for David. It's not magic. God disciplines us to make us more like his son. And one of the takeaways here is that the pain of consequences that go on and on in David's life, it'll take us all the way to the end of 2 Samuel, will always, the pain of consequences will always trump the momentary pleasure of sin. Parents, tell your kids that. Parents, talk to your young adults about that. Okay, now what I want to do is unpack David's repentance. Look at verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Six words. But a statement that reflects spiritual greatness. When Richard Nixon was president, he lied and authorized hush money to cover up his crimes. But a tape recording, not a confession, sank him. Some years go by and Bill Clinton is president. And when President Clinton looked into a TV camera before a national audience and lied, it was a dress, not a confession that led to his impeachment. Now David, when we come to his confession, the beginning of his repentance in verse 13, has been living with this for about a year. And according to his own testimony, own testimony in Psalm 32, it's been an awful year. He, he talks about his strength being uh, sapped away. He talks about his bones aching. He talks about God's hand being heavy on him. It's a description of guilt, of David's angst, all before he comes clean, as he comes clean in verse 13. Yet, uh, David knew uh, what Presidents Nixon and Clinton uh, also knew. And that is confession for a political leader is political suicide. And for 12 months, David just covers it up, hushes, hushes it. A confession for a leader is the results in the irretrievable, irretrievable loss of face and, and respect. And the leaders have a way of justifying it by saying, well, if I come clean, then it'll result in chaos in the country or, or chaos in the company. And they keep on covering it up. It's just self-justification. Yet when we come to verse 13, what we discover is that David was made out of a different metal, different fiber. 
Because he realized that God and his ways trump everything. So in spite of the political consequences, David comes clean. And in the palace, in the courtroom, before the prophet, maybe before others, he confesses his sin. Six words. I've sinned. Now what is confession? Well, confession as we see here is the open, unguarded admission of guilt. It's verse 13. Doesn't have to be eloquent. Doesn't have to be long. It just has to be honest. And the reason I think this is a, a indicative or a statement of, of spiritual greatness is because godliness is never having it all together. That's impossible. That person doesn't exist. Uh, godliness is not image management. Looking good. It's the willingness to come clean when you blow it regardless of the consequences, regardless of the costs. It's the willingness, let me come at it a little differently, it's the willingness not to isolate, to retreat, to withdraw. It's the willingness to allow other people into your life, uh, uh, other friends, Nathan. A and you listen to them because you know your biggest weaknesses are often your biggest blind spots and you need other people to expose them because by definition you're blind to them. And I say that because I don't want you to miss the role of a friend, a, a prophet, a, a Nathan. In David's life. I don't want you to miss the role of, 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 of another person in repentance. It's, by the way, why uh, this uh, marriage ministry we have called Re-Engage we're so very excited about. Where couples come alongside other couples, help them uh, working through issues so they can get to be where God wants them to be. You and I desperately need people in our lives that can help us with our blind spots because by definition we don't see them. And I can promise you, your greatest weaknesses are often your biggest blind spots. Now, what I'm doing is just setting the table and I want to go deeper. And so I want to leave for a little bit 2 Samuel chapter 12 and I want to go to Psalm 51. So turn with me ahead a couple hundred pages to Psalm 51. Now I've said before what we see in First and Second Samuel is David on the outside. But when we go to the Psalms, what we see is David on the inside. And Psalm 51 is David's diary of his repentance. Following his sin with Bathsheba, Uriah, and on and on. And by the way, Psalm 51 is how we know David's uh, confession is genuine because not all confessions are genuine. David's confession leads to uh, repentance. So what we have in Psalm 51 is David on the inside. Now this, you need to know when we come to Psalm 51, this is the most complete repentance in the Bible. And it's absolutely critical for us as followers of Christ because repentance is the key to life change. Anything short of repentance doesn't lead to change. 
So uh, we're looking at this because I want to help you be a person that changes for the glory of God. All we're going to do is read the first four verses. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Now confession is a statement. Repentance is a process. Repentance is a process of turning around, the process of doing a 180, the process of turning away, of changing your mind, of changing your life. I, I love the way Pastor Tim Keller put it when he said, repentance is killing the habits of your heart that are killing you without you killing yourself. And repentance, according to Dr. Keller, it involves three parts. There's a thing with your mind, a thing with your will, and, and a thing with your heart. And all three of these parts are in verse 4 of Psalm 51. So here we go. How do we get to repentance? What does genuine repentance look like? First of all, with your mind, you see your deed is evil. In verse 4, David says, I have done what is evil in your sight. Now guilt, let me talk about guilt for a minute. Guilt wears many different faces, right? There's true guilt, false guilt. There's proportionate guilt, disproportionate guilt. All sorts of people uh, have always done things they should feel horribly guilty about. Uh, say murder, robbery, on and on. Think Hitler. But they don't feel guilty about them. Then there, there's another set of people who, who do just seemingly little things or little missteps and they feel horribly guilty about them and they shouldn't. So we have true guilt that we don't often feel and then we have false guilt that, that many of us struggle with. And the point is that when we are trying to get at guilt uh, before God, we cannot trust our hearts. We cannot trust our feelings. They're fallen. You cannot deal adequately, correctly with guilt. True guilt, unless you know what's morally right and wrong. And psychology, science, education, your heart can't tell you. They cannot tell you. Only religion can. We believe, I believe, only the Bible can. David sees his deed as true guilt. Because he knows there is a standard above his heart that judges his heart. And the standard is God's word. So what does David do? David goes to God's word with his mind. And he understands that what he has done is evil in God's sight. David does not say here, what I have done is evil in the sight of my parents or evil in the sight of my friends. But God, it's evil in your sight. Genuine repentance, sustainable change demands you see what you've done as evil. Not more and not less. 
And there's this mind thing. So David's confession in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 13 parallels identically what he's saying here in Psalm 54.1. And both are extraordinary statements on the part of one of the greatest men who's ever lived of his own true guilt. Now there's a second part. A second piece of genuine repentance, sustainable change. And that is, with your will, you take full responsibility for your actions. And look at verse 4 again. In verse 4, David says, I sinned. I sinned. Unlike Adam and Eve in the garden, remember uh, uh, Adam and Eve in in the garden? Uh, God comes to Adam. Well, uh, I'm sorry, God, the woman you gave me. And God comes to Eve, and Eve says, well, it's a serpent. Uh, but here with David in Psalm 51 in, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, there's no deflection. There's no blaming somebody else. There's no self-pity. Uh, there, there's no sense of being a victim. David takes full responsibility. I've sinned. I've done this. He owns up. Now you 20-somethings, Ted talked about the table, Uh, um, 30-somethings. Those of you that are single, you're you're building your lives. uh, Many of you want to be married. Not all of you, many of you want to be married. And you want your life to count. You want to live a life of purity. Uh, But your friends, and your friends are drinking and partying and sleeping around. And you justify your behavior by telling yourself, all my friends are doing it. All my friends. And unintentionally, you assume a victim posture. And you deflect responsibility. Healing. Purity begins when with your mind you see your deeds as evil and with your will you take responsibility. You own it. And this is precisely when healing begins in marriages. Uh, You know, she's impossible. He's angry all the time. And your marriage just sort of spirals the drain. And one day you wake up and you say, you know what? I'm not responsible for her, but I'm responsible for me. And I've got my stuff I've got to deal with. And so moving forward, I'm going to take responsibility for my actions. And whenever that happens in a marriage, I can promise you healing begins. So there's a deal with your mind, there's a deal with your will. If you want to get to real change, if you want to get to real repentance, you want to sustain it over the course of your life. But third, and this is the more difficult, the more complex part, with your heart, you develop a distaste for your sin because of a renewed awareness of God's love. For you. And we have to work a little bit to see this in our passage. But in verse 4, at the beginning, David says, Against you, you only. 
You. You. Against you, you only. Now, now we call this doubling. It's a way of, of, of speaking that intensifies the, the statement. So when David says, uh, against you, you only, uh, David is, is speaking with intense emotion. David is horrified in his heart at his evil because of his renewed awareness of the deep, deep love God has for him that he expresses in verse 1 at the front end of the psalm. Now you need to understand when David says uh, against you, you only, David is not speaking theologically. He is not speaking precisely because we read this and we say, what? How can you say against God only? Look what you did to Bathsheba. Look what you did to Uriah. Look at how you wrecked all these other soldiers' families' lives. David, you've defrauded. David, you've murdered. David, you've sinned against a whole lot of other people. David is not speaking with theological precision. If he was, he would say, against you, I've primarily sinned. This is a prayer, a a, a psalm, a poem of repentance. And David is speaking metaphorically about how awful what he did was because he offended the living God. And that's so awful, all other aspects of it pale in comparison. And so when David says, you, you, we see David's heart. We see his hatred in his heart of what he has done to God. And we know he's changing. He's repenting. Now this weekend, this uh, crazy, raunchy, sexploitation movie, Fifty Shades of Grey, has come out. It's based on a book sold north of 100 million copies around the world. It, it's just a big buzz in our culture. And so we've got the violence Ted prayed against going on, and, and we've got this kind of stuff that is uh, condoning, uh, you know, kind of playful violence, I guess, and, in, in, in a sexual relationship apart from marriage. And the reason I mention this is because on Friday, I, I tweeted about an article that actually Ted gave me uh, a couple days before about a biblical response to a movie like this or how we as Christ followers should think about this movie. And I got to tell you, um, the guys in social media here told me my... My, my Twitter account just blew up. Click after click after click. If you want to read the article, and I'd encourage you to read the article, if you want to think biblically about this, you, you can uh, just access me at at Pastor Rob Boo. That's my Twitter account, at Pastor Rob Boo. Get, get the article. Just don't read it right now. <laughs> read, it, read it later. The guy makes 10 points in the article. And one of the points he makes that's so pertinent to this, and he talks about the David and Bathsheba story, is one of the ways we know we're in deep weeds in these areas is not just because um, we're victims of the darkness that's around us. The reality, the biblical reality, is we're lovers 
of the darkness. And last week when I was unpacking David's problem in the first part of this two-part series, what I said is that David didn't have problems with multiplying horses. David didn't have a problem with multiplying silver. David had a problem with multiplying women, wives, concubines. It was a heart thing for David. And like most of us, he was okay in other areas, but he had this area uh, that sunk him. And when David says here in Psalm 51, against you, you only I have sinned, he's doing a 180 in his heart. He's repenting, he's reflecting his hatred for what he once secretly loved. Now, now hear me. When your vision of God, your experience of the love of God, your knowledge of the greatness of God becomes the thing that causes you to hate what you've done in the darkness, then you will repent. Then you are repenting. And I say that because so often when it comes to this kind of stuff, our focus is on the consequences. And if our focus is exclusively on the consequences, sometimes that's nothing more than self-pity and it's not repentance at all. But if your focus is on your betrayal of the living, holy, righteous God of the universe, your loving Heavenly Father who crucified his Son for your sin and who would never ever do a thing to hurt you, if that's your focus, then you will repent. So what this means is if a friend comes to you, a Nathan type, and says, you know, man, I, I love you, but you drink too much. <coughs> or your wife says, you know, you work too much. Or somebody says, you know, you, you're just too angry. And you say, yeah, you're right. But over time, once the pressure is lifted, once they stop speaking that truth into your life, unless you develop an emotional hatred, a distaste in your heart for that evil, for that action, for that behavior, you won't sustain a change because you're focused on consequences. Not the love of God. Repentance, then, is fundamentally vertical. You hate what you've done because of your renewed awareness of how much God loves you in Jesus Christ. And you can't recover from that. Now, I've taken some time on David's side, this repentance side, uh, because we have to think profoundly about repentance if we're going to get to profound change. And I want you to be free to change. But now let's go to the divine side. Let's look at God's restoration. Uh, let's look at this divine forgiveness. And we find it back in chapter 12. So go back to 2 Samuel chapter 12 and just one verse. 
Verse 13. God in his grace, and, and Nathan is a grace gift to David. God in his grace has sent Nathan, and look what Nathan says, continuing in verse 13. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not, you're not going to die. Now underline those two sentences. Uh, circle them. I read this the other day. I've been reading this for a couple weeks now. But I read this the other day, and I got, I'm going to be honest with you. I just started crying at my desk. I just started crying. I mean, adultery is punishable by death in the Old Testament. Adultery is still punishable by death in certain cultures around the world today. David, by rights, deserved to die. But God, through the prophet Nathan, comes to him and says, not only David, you're not going to die, but he says, God has taken away your sin. This is divine forgiveness. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is God taking away your sin, never holding it against you. This is a vivid Old Testament picture of grace, a vivid Old Testament picture of the gospel, a vivid Old Testament picture of what God will do in and through the death of Jesus Christ. Now, during World War II, a Jewish concentration camp prisoner was a man by the name of Simon Weisenthal. And it had been bad, it had been brutal for Simon in these Nazi concentration camps. And one day a nurse in the concentration camp grabbed him and took him to an SS Nazi guard who was dying. He'd been wounded, and he was dying. And, and the nurse said, his, the, the guard, his name was Carl, Carl wants to talk to you because you're a Jew, and I just happened to pick you because he wants to confess the atrocities he's committed against Jews to a Jew. Simon, the last thing he wanted to do was go talk to this Nazi guard. So he went in, and, and Carl spent a long time uh, confessing the atrocities, the hundreds of Jews he had murdered in the concentration camps. And at the end, Carl, the Nazi guard, said to uh, Simon, uh, the Jewish prisoner in a concentration camp, uh, Simon, can you forgive me? as a Jew for the crimes I've committed against the Jews because if you can't forgive me I can't die in peace and Simon who wrote a book about this said he got really silent didn't move and thought and thought and thought and then he turned and walked out of the room he concluded it was impossible to forgive Carl forgiveness is impossible. Yet Nathan comes to David and says, the Lord has taken away your sin. The Lord ha has forgiven you. Divine forgiveness, this forgiveness of David is totally undeserved, it's totally unmerited, it's totally free. And for those of you that feel like you can't be forgiven, if God can forgive David, he can forgive you. Now how? How in the world can God do this? And the answer 
is in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, this courtroom of David in 2 Samuel chapter 12 points to another courtroom, the courtroom of Pilate. And here in this Old Testament courtroom, Nathan says to David, you are the man. And in the New Testament courtroom of Pontius Pilate, Pilate goes before the Jews and speaking of Jesus says, here's the man. Wording is very similar. And in both courtrooms, what's going on is really backwards. It's upside down. It's topsy-turvy. Because here in this Old Testament courtroom, David, who's on the throne, should be in the dock. And in Pilate's courtroom, Jesus, who should be on the throne, is in the dock. Why? Because Jesus Christ was condemned to die so we could go free. Jesus Christ was condemned on the cross. So in Pilate's courtroom, nobody came to rescue Jesus on the cross. Nobody came to rescue Jesus. Nobody shows up because God sent Jesus Christ to die in our place so that when we repent, we can find forgiveness, divine forgiveness. Now, underneath David's abuse of power, his betrayal, adultery, murder, and on and on, there was a deeper problem. And that is David lost sight of the redeeming, renewing grace of God, the love of God. Underneath David's physical adultery was spiritual adultery. And David needed Bathsheba's arms because he didn't have God's. He needed Bathsheba's beauty because he didn't see God. He lost sight of God's beauty. And so in verse 1, when David is, um, in Psalm 51, when David is announcing his repentance and depicting it for all of history, David reveals that he has a renewed confidence in the love of God, your unfailing love, your great compassion, he writes about. And men and women today, in light of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, we have an even greater confidence and even greater assurance in God's forgiving love and, and his grace. In, in, in the Gospels, Jesus confronted an adulterer, a female adulterer, the woman caught in adultery. And Jesus didn't say to her, forsake your sin, change your life, clean it up, and I won't condemn you. That's religion. That's what religion says. Uh, what did Jesus say? Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. That's the gospel. Uh, Jesus is saying, I am about to take all your condemnation on myself. I will be condemned in your place for you. And Jesus Christ is saying the exact same thing to you and me. Neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more.
And, and, and ultimately, it's the love of God revealed in the work of Jesus Christ that is the solution to the emptiness, the evil of the human heart. Let's pray. So God, as we, as we come to you, would you speak to us as, as we continue to worship? Would you open our hearts and our minds to your love, this incredible love that we might have a, a renewed, renewed sense of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Help us, God, right now, right here, to fall in love with you all over again in light of what you have done. I pray in the name of your Son. Amen.